So this morning, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to John chapter 20, and there's a Bible app event for this. I'll talk about that in a minute. But in John chapter 20, we're going to read together, and if you didn't think to bring a Bible of your own, there ought to be a Bible in a chair near you, maybe under the rack, and you would find this story on page 1074, 1074. John 20 is where we're going to be. And the way the Bible app event works, if you have the Bible app on your phone, and you hit the menu, and you hit events, it'll take you to one called Kerwinsville Alliance. And it's my sermon notes and a scripture as well that you can follow along there. It's, it's really helpful to do that. So John 20 is where we'll be in just a moment. Do you have people in your life who don't understand subtleties? Now, when I said that in the first service, a whole bunch of women started laughing, like, <laughs> do I ever? And you know who they're talking about, guys? <laughs> they're talking about you and me, that we don't get subtleties. And, and that's true. I think we all have people in our life that subtleties just go past them. For example, you have a couple over to your house or visiting you, and here they are uh, in the evening for dinner, and then you're going to, to visit throughout the evening. And it, it's getting kind of late, and so you kind of drop a hint that it's time for them to go. Hey, it was so nice to have you guys over this evening. We'll have to do this again sometime. Thanks for coming. And they say, this is nice. We really like it. And they stay right where they are. You know? Do you know those people? They're not good at picking up on subtleties. So maybe you kind of ramp it up a little bit, you know, and you say, whoa, I have to be at work tomorrow at five o'clock. Wow, it's getting really late. And the guy looks at you and he says, wow, I don't have to be at work till nine. That's got to be tough. How do you manage that? Right? You have those people in your life, they're just not picking up on the subtleties. And so finally, you look at your wife and you nod. And she knows what to do. She says, well, I'm going to bed. Good night. And you walk over and you put your hand on the door and you open the door that goes out to your driveway and say, see you guys later. And hopefully they'll get it by then, right? You put your hand on the door, make an exit, that usually works. Right? Sadly, I admit to you that I don't pick up on subtleties well at all. That is one of the reasons that God created Laurel Shields. Uh, she helps me with subtleties. And there are subtleties in the story of Jesus that sometimes I didn't pick up on. There are subtle realities, especially around the Easter season. And I'd like to share them with you today. So if you have your Bibles, open to John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Follow along silently as I read this aloud. John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went down to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where we, they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, went, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, 
Why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he said these things to her. I want to begin as we look at this, and I kind of want to talk about the obvious realities that are found in the scripture, things that like everybody knows, it's just the common things that you think about in the resurrection of Christ. And the first one we encounter is what Mary encountered. But wait a minute, let me talk about Mary Magdalene for a minute. I can't believe I have to say this sentence, but I have to say this sentence. This is not Jesus' wife. Okay, there. You understand that, right? You're not stupid. I'm just going to say this sentence. You would be really stupid to think this was Mary Magdalene's wife. I'm sorry, Jesus' wife. Because, because the scripture does not indicate that Jesus even had a wife. It indicates that he was single throughout his life. Dan Brown, when he wrote the Da Vinci Code, he married Jesus off. But Mary Magdalene was long gone and dead by then, and that's just fiction. Do you know what fiction is? It's stuff that's made up. So I just had to cover that little piece of real estate because some of us tramp around on that from time to time. Jesus was not married to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was a considerable figure, though, in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a considerable figure in the life of Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8 tells us that Mary Magdalene had seven demonic spirits inside of her. And Jesus freed her from that. And naturally, she was thankful. No wonder she was one of the first to show up at the grave of Jesus. And when it was empty and the disciples all went back to where they were saying, she lingered. She was so grateful to Jesus for what he'd done. And there she is in that area. Even as she approached that area, she sees these obvious realities. The first thing she sees is an open tomb. In verse 1, the second half of it says, she went to the tomb and saw the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. And it's a big stone. Have you ever picked up a really big stone? I remember when I was a kid, my brother Dave hurt his back by trying to pick up a stone. He was moving, doing some uh, excavation work, and he reached down to pick up this stone. It was a piece of sandstone, and it was about the size of carry-on luggage. How do you think that went? He injured his back doing it. This is no small stone. It's in front of Jesus' tomb, and it says in another passage of Scripture in Mark, the women were wondering, how are we going to move that stone? Well, when they got there, they didn't have to. It had been moved, and Luke tells us that An angel actually rolled it away. And so you have an open tomb, and it's an empty tomb, and that tells us many things about Jesus. It has many implications. Number one, he's alive. Number two, death has been swallowed up in victory. Number three, Satan has been defeated. Number four, our sins can be forgiven if we will trust in this resurrected Christ. And number five, there is death. Sorry, there is life after death. That open tomb with no one in it speaks loudly. It's an obvious reality of the resurrection. Right along with that goes the obvious reality of the missing body. They've taken the Lord, Mary says in verse 2, to the disciples out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. And I'm guessing that Peter would have been like, wait, what? Why would they take him? Who does that? Who does that? And it was just unbelievable to them. And what complicated the whole thing was in verse 9, the scripture tells us, John tells us that they still didn't understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They just didn't know 
what to make of it. And all they knew was that Jesus' body was AWOL, absent without leave. It's gone. Now, if you happen to visit Jerusalem as a tourist, you will go to a place called the Garden Tomb. When you go to the Garden Tomb, nobody knows for sure if that's the actual tomb of Jesus. In fact, Roman Catholics would say, no, his tomb is in town. It's at the tomb of the Holy Sepulcher. But no, or the the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, that's what I meant to say. Um, and, And so there's debate about, is this really the tomb that Jesus was in? And, and what will happen when you go there, if you go on a Holy Land tour, you have your everyday tour guide. But when you get to the Garden Tomb, the Garden Tomb people, they take over being the tour guide for those few hours. And when you're there, they talk to you about why they think this is a tomb. And they give you all the rational explanations. And then at the end, they say something like this. They say, is this the place where Jesus was buried? I don't know for sure. Is this the place where the angel rolled away the stone? I can't be sure. Is this the place where Mary Magdalene came that morning? I don't know for certain. But here's what I do know. That the tomb, wherever it may be, is empty. And that's the point. The body is missing. It's an empty tomb. And Luke says it when he says, why would you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. One of the most obvious realities about Easter is the missing body. There's others as well. There's the angels. I've never seen an angel with the exception of my wife. She is not even here, and I said that. I'm not even going to get points. I've never seen an angel. I'd love to see an angel. I don't think Mary had probably ever seen an angel until that moment, and she didn't even seem to know that it was an angel at first. She saw two of them. She doesn't make a fuss about the appearance. Maybe it's because her eyes are filled with tears. She doesn't even recognize Jesus when he first appears to her. She's very upset. And in verse 13, the angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they put him. It's the second time that she said that sentence. So at that moment, the angels don't really seem that important to her or that obvious to her, even though they're dressed in white, even though they weren't there just a minute ago, and now they're there in the tomb, even though they're sitting in the tomb where Jesus' body would be, who's going to be doing that? What human's going to do that? But they're messengers. And Luke gives us a little more information concerning the interaction that Mary has with them. He shows us that Mary's not alone. John shows us that too, if you read carefully. But in Luke 24, the men, the angels, said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, raised again. That's a message of hope, and that's what angels deliver. A message from God, that's what angels bring. A message of impact. And it had impact. Because in the very next verse, you find um, Luke reporting that they remembered Jesus' words. And they started to get it. That the reason this body is missing is because Jesus said he was going to raise from the dead. There's much more interaction with the angels than any one gospel records, but the reality is they were there. It's an obvious reality of the resurrection. Oh, and don't forget, Jesus himself is one of the realities. When he shows up and, and, and he says to her, who are you looking for? You know, if I'm Mary and I think about this in retrospect, I'd be so embarrassed, <laughs> Right? Who are you looking for? I am, they took the Lord away, you know. And Why are you crying? Because they took the Lord away. Mary. Huh? It's Jesus. Rabboni. Wow. And she falls at his feet. 
the resurrected Christ. What a thing to have seen. Do you not feel a little bit envious of Mary? I do. What a moment that must have been. Those are the obvious realities of the resurrection. There's some more subtle things, some less obvious things that came about, changes that come about at the resurrection of Jesus. And while their implications are huge, because of the other things like the empty tomb and the angels and the missing body and the resurrected Christ, sometimes if we don't pay close attention and dig down a little bit, we can miss these more subtle realities. And that is to our detriment when we miss them. The first of these is this. You don't need to be afraid. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells you you don't need to be afraid. In fact, the most repeated command in Scripture, and I've told you this probably hundreds of times now, the thing that God commands you to do the most in all of Scripture is this. Fear not. You don't have to be afraid. Verse 17 used to kind of puzzle me, and I don't think I was alone. Because in verse 17, a theological line of thinking is developed by other people that always seemed a little bit forced to me, even though I used to teach it. And whenever you find a Bible teacher teaching something that seems a little bit hard to, to get across, and, and th- th- is that what the text is really saying? It's probably because that Bible teacher is saying, man, I can't figure out what this means. <laughs> it's really hard to understand. It used to really puzzle me, verse 17. I think it's a lot simpler than I once thought it was. How do you take the first sentence of verse 17 where it says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Is Jesus saying, Hey, don't hold on to me. I've got to get going. I have to ascend to the Father. Just let me go. I need to go. Would you let me go, Mary? Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. I don't think so. You kind of get a feel for what's happening by looking at what Jesus says when Matthew tells a story. When Matthew tells a story, he writes, Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Okay, have you ever had anyone grab a hold of you by your feet or your legs? Just throw themselves on the ground and grab you around the ankles and not let go. Maybe an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend. Maybe it was a bad breakup. Have you had that happen? I, I, I haven't had that happen. Here's what I have had, though. I've had my children when they were small grab my feet and I'm dragging, you know, to, ah, and, and just dragging them across the carpet. You've had that happen, right? I can't get loose from you. Don't hold on to me that way. Let me go. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit of what was happening. Because Mary is so glad to see Jesus, she's not going to let him go. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to hang on to me. I haven't ascended to the Father yet. I'm not leaving. I'm here. Don't be afraid. In fact, verse 9 says they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then verse 10 says, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Yeah, I don't think that Jesus is saying, let go of me, I need to escape you. Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's saying, don't hang on to me here. I have something for you to do. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Instead of hanging on to me, I have something for you to do. Go tell my brothers that I'm here, that I'm alive. And that's what she does. 
This idea, you don't need to be afraid, is a subtle reality in the resurrection of Christ. Jesus will never abandon you. You don't need to be afraid. If it seems as though he is absent, maybe you're not looking the right place, or maybe the tears in your eyes are clouding your vision, or maybe there's a good reason for it, but he will never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to be afraid. If you're feeling attacked or bullied, he's there to protect you. If you're feeling sick, he is there for you. If you're feeling alone, you are not because he is there with you. If you feel as though you're in danger, you don't have to worry. He is beside you. And when you turn on the news or surf the web and you see news stories from here to the other side of the planet about how the world seems to be disintegrating, understand he still has the whole world in his hands. You don't have to be afraid. And that is a subtle reality that comes from the resurrection. Here's a second subtle reality. You have places to go and things to do. We just read it in Matthew and in John. The reason Mary isn't supposed to hold on to Jesus is because she has a mission. She has something she's supposed to do. Go, instead of hanging on to me, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That statement is so rich with meaning. Christ is risen. That's great news. Jesus is going to ascend. That's great news. And if the disciples are smart enough to think this through, and they're smart enough, but it's a time of chaos, they might not exactly think it through. But if they could go back in their minds just four chapters earlier than this, they might remember that Jesus said, truly I say to you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the advocate he's speaking of is the Holy Spirit of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And while Jesus came and was with them, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in them. And Jesus even says, it is better for you that I go. Because then you have my Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the Advocate, the Counselor, the Paraclete, dwelling inside you. That's great news. I hear Jesus saying, Mary, don't hang on to my feet like this. You have a job to do. Go tell your brothers and sisters the good news. Go tell my brothers and sisters the good news. It's a subtle reality. We have the joy of sharing the good news of Christ. The third subtle reality is this. Your relationship with God has forever changed. Well, it has if you accepted Christ and his work on a cross as applying to you personally. If you've opened your heart to Christ. If you've turned from your sin, that's repentance. If you're trusting in Jesus' death on a cross for you, that's faith. Then because of the events we commemorate at Easter, your relationship with God is something that otherwise could never have been. Look at it again in verse 17. He says, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, there are some really good things to note here. The first one is this. Jesus calls them brothers. I I did some research this week. I called some other pastors that I know and said, am I right in this? Because I never noticed this before. This is the only place I can find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where Jesus refers to any human beings as brother or sister. 
It's the first time he's done this. Now, back in Matthew 12, he says, whoever does the will of my father is my brother, my sister, my mother. But he hasn't said specifically, you're my brother, you're my sister, until now. He calls his disciples friends in John 15. He says, I used to call you my servants, but a servant doesn't know his master's business. I'm calling you my friends. Friends are one thing. Brothers and sisters, they're a whole different thing. And this is the first time that Jesus calls his followers siblings. Brothers and sisters. And it seems to me that that is a close relationship that Jesus has been waiting until this moment to be able to acknowledge it. And now he acknowledges. And he can do that because of what just happened. He just made them holy by dying on the cross for their sins. And he just rose from the grave to demonstrate his power and that that sacrifice was acceptable. And because he died to make them holy, he can now call them brothers and sisters, because if they are in Christ, they are holy. I don't know, Pastor Steve, where are you getting that? The Bible. I got it out of the Bible. It's in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's those that are trusting in Jesus, are of the same family. So Jesus is not afraid to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus can call you his sibling because if you're trusting him, his death has made you holy. And so when he tells Mary to go to my brothers, he's subtly saying the relationship that they had with him has forever changed. And he's got to be smiling when he says this. If I'm Jesus at that graveside, I just can't stop smiling because of what a beautiful moment and what great news it is. And their relationship with God has forever changed. Jesus says, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Don't take that the wrong way, by the way. And Jesus isn't saying, now I'm worshiping the Father and you can worship the Father. We can both worship God together. Jesus doesn't worship the Father. He's co-equal with the Father. You understand that? What he's saying is so much simpler than that. He's saying, welcome aboard. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the kingdom. Now we're in this together. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And we share a closeness that we could never have shared before my death on the cross. What a, what a, what a beautiful moment. What a beautiful moment. Some people get subtleties. Some of us don't. <laughs> wow. That coffee you're pouring, man, that sure smells good. Some people will get that subtlety and pour you a cup, and other people are like, it is good. <laughs> hey, when you're helping me out there, let me ask you a question. Can you see when you're shining a light in my eyes? Because I can't. Some helpers will get the subtlety of that. Others won't. Hey, Willis, when was the last time you saw a toothbrush? <laughs> Some people will get the subtlety of that. Some people won't. But the subtle realities we discuss today are ones that everyone should get. And they're realities that are boldly predicted throughout Scripture and recorded throughout Scripture. It's said by Jeremiah over five centuries before it actually happened. Just let me read to you from Jeremiah 31, 
starting at verse 31. God says this. He says, or the word of God says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with my people Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now pay attention. Here it is. Listen to what he says. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. Do you see the parallel between those words of Jehovah God, Yahweh, clear back in Jeremiah, and Jesus' simple statement, I'm going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. These are subtle realities of the resurrection. It's not simply about the obvious, the empty tomb, the missing body, the angels, the risen Christ. Those things are essential to understand. At least three of them are. The empty tomb, the missing body, and the resurrected Jesus. If we didn't have those, we wouldn't have any hope at all. But there's something else that you need to be aware of. Some other subtle realities that you don't need to be afraid. That there are places for you to go and things for you to do for Christ. And your relationship with him can be forever changed. I kind of imagine Jesus saying to Mary what Isaiah was writing, or I'm sorry, what Jeremiah was writing down. The days are coming, Jesus saying, the days are no longer coming, Mary. They're here. And those days are here for you and for me too. And if you want to be free of your fear, your guilt, and your shame, you can be free. And if you want to join Jesus in a mission of proclaiming good news of the forgiveness of sin through him, you can join him. And if you want a relationship with God, you can get it. You simply turn your heart to Jesus. You turn your heart to Christ. And you tell him that you've messed up. That's called confessing sin. I messed up. And you trust him that he loved you and gave himself for you on the cross. That's faith. Believing that he died for you. And you follow him. You turn from your own darkness to his beautiful light. That's repentance. And if that's something that you want this Easter Sunday, then I'm going to go ahead and pray to that end. And in the quietness of your heart, in the silence of your heart, you can pray with me. Let's stand together before we do that. So here's my desire. Here's my hope. My hope is that you saw the obvious, the empty tomb, the missing body, the angels, the resurrected Jesus, and that you picked up on the subtle, that you personally don't have to be afraid that there's a God who loved you and died for you. And you have places to go and things to do. You're important in the grand scheme of things. He has a mission for you. And your relationship with God can be forever changed if you'll trust this Jesus. The requirements for salvation are very simple. <laughs> it's a matter of repentance and faith. Repentance is just saying, I've been doing bad things. I know they're wrong. I confess them. I'm sorry. I want to turn away from them. Repentance doesn't mean you become perfect. None of us are perfect. It means a change of mind has happened inside of you that you no longer feel the same about sin that you used to feel 
and you're ready to turn away from it. Repentance and faith. Faith is saying, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. That when you were hanging there on the cross, Jesus, I was hanging in your mind. And that you took my place. You paid a debt you didn't owe. It was my debt. And I want that to count for me. And that's really what being saved is. That is what experiencing Christ is. That is what having your relationship with God forever changed is all about. And if that's what you want this morning, then as I pray words that I would pray if that's what I wanted for the first time, in the silence of your heart, you talk to God and you tell him the same thing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we've all heard about Easter and we know about the empty tomb and the missing body and the resurrected Jesus. Maybe we didn't really understand that that was supposed to apply to us in ways that are deeply personal. So we think of Jesus on the cross and we respond to that act of love. We respond to your act of love with our hearts. Jesus, I realize that I have sinned and I confess that to you. I am sorry for my sin. I know it doesn't please you. And I repent. I turn away from my sin. I know, I know it won't be perfect, but I want to say to you, Jesus, I'm turning my back on sin. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe I can be forgive from, forgiven for my sin because I believe, Jesus, that you paid the price for my sin, that you went to the cross to die in my place. And so, Lord Jesus, I, I trust you, and I, I rely on you, and I want to follow you. I am not foolish enough to think that getting saved is about getting a life insurance policy to avoid hell. I am wise enough to realize that this kind of debt, as the poet says, demands my heart, my life, my all. And so I give you my heart. I will walk after you and follow you. A heart of love is what I give to you. And I do all this in Jesus' name. And Father, as different people may have prayed that prayer to you for the first time today, I trust you to have heard it. And I trust you to work in their lives to make them the people that they can be. Pray that they will know they don't need to be afraid. I pray that they will see the places you have for them to go and the things you have for them to do. I pray that you will change their relationship with you now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. Streams of grace.